0: The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. May that be true of our lives, that there is none that we desire besides you. Lord, we we know that we are uh, tempted, distracted, persuaded by many things of this world, but Lord, in the end, you are our creator, and it is in you that our satisfaction and life will be found. So, Lord, as we open up this uh, passage this morning and look at the life of King Asa, Lord, would you help us to see that, that truth clearly, Lord, that... Lord, if we seek after you, we will not be let down. So Lord, put that desire on our hearts this morning. Would you encourage it? Would you fan it into flame? And Lord, would, we, would you help us to learn something um, from your word and, and from the life of this king? So we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So one big thing for us this last week is that our oldest started kindergarten. And so, pr- pretty fun time, but a-, a friend was texting me and asking me, how'd the first day of school go? And my response was, was this. Our son did great, mom had a hard time, but she kept it together, daddy cried on the inside. So this change in in one sense is small and ordinary and and many of us in this room have experienced this or will experience it. Uh, But in another sense, it's represented a a challenge for me that's brought some things into into focus. And as a parent, there's been two competing thought processes with different emotions that, that I've been feeling and finding myself facing just with this transition in our family, in our life. The, the first one is that of a, of a hopeful idealism. So as I look at, look at our kids' lives and look at the future, there's this idealism of all the plans that we have for their lives. Everything that we want to plan out for them. And so some of the plans, you know, if I could write my kids' story would go like this. Uh, my son will be a two-sport athlete. Soccer and basketball, precisely. You've got to have a warm weather sport and a cold weather sport. He'd be fluent in multiple languages. Uh, he'd play a musical instrument. He'd be academically smart, but also socially minded at the same time. We'd tra- train him up in the way of the Lord to love God and to love people. He'd know his Bible. He'd discern right from wrong. He'd repent of sin. These would be things that we, we could if we could plan out, and get his life, there's a hopeful idealism idealism that these things will work out and play out according to that. But this is mixed and complex, so that's, there's hopeful idealism, but then there's also a fearful pessimism. So as we we drop him off at school, all kinds of questions flood our minds, and, and questions like these. What if he doesn't make any friends? What if he learns bad things from other kids in school? What if the secular world's voice is louder and more winsome than ours or or God's voice? What if he defects from the faith down the line and defects from the faith and truth that we are raising him up in? So as we drop him off, we we feel this uh, hopeful idealism, but also this fearful pessimism about what could happen, what could be. Life has many different types of transitions and change is inevitable. And things almost never stay the same. And so the question is not, will change take place? Or will challenges come our way? Rather, the question is, how will we respond when change happens? How will we respond when confronted with a challenge? In both our hopes and fears, What's guiding or motivating us? Is it fear or is it faith? Is it control or is it rest? And in this case, what is it that our kids truly need? But more generally for all of us, what is it that we think we truly need? Regardless of of whether or not you're a parent, I think we all feel this tension between hopeful idealism and and a fearful pessimism. We have an idea of how we think things should go, yet we're keenly aware that we are not in control. So then the question for us today is, what are we supposed to do with that tension? Where are we supposed to go with that? So this morning we're gonna look at the life of King Asa in 2 Chronicles 14, chapters 14 through 16. And we're gonna see that There's a complexity of a man who faced challenges and at times he was blameless, but other times he was proud and foolish. And so a little background, um, this is a a series that I I started some time ago looking at some of the reforming kings of Judah. So in the past we've looked at Solomon, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, Josiah, and if you're newer here, um, our lead lead pastor is out this week, and so I'm filling in and, and jumping back into the series, kind of out of chronological date. Um, but in that, we're going to be looking at the life of King Asa. And we're going to be looking at it specifically through the account of Second Chronicles. And Second Chronicles is a book that exists to hold out kind of an ideal view of the king and the kingdom as a teacher for, for Israel most likely in the post-exile sense, when Israel is returning back to the homeland after their exile to give instructions about what the king and the kingdom is supposed to look like, to help encourage them towards faith and obedience and trust in God. So in Chronicles, we see a lot of what's lifted up to commend what the kings did well, but also what they didn't do well. But the idea is that that's a teacher. It's a teacher for... Um, for the for the people, and it's it's a teacher for us today um, as we look at that. So King King Asa, he is Solomon's great grandson. And so with that, it goes Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa. So with Solomon, he had an he established an incredible kingdom, the most affluent national um, prominence and God was with them but at the end of Solomon's life his heart grew proud and then in that because of his own sin basically God told him that the king is the kingdom is going to be torn into two and so as soon as his son Rehoboam comes on the scene the kingdom is divided into the northern tribe of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin and this forever changes the history of what's supposed to be one united, one united nation under God. There's now division and war and challenges. So that's, that's the landscape of Rehoboam and Abijah. Could have been worse. There were far worse kings, but they were also not great. And that they sought after God and, and brought about and continued what was intended. And in some of the the, uh, previous sermons on this series, um, I just want to reflect on one thing, that in the past, God made a covenant with David and then reaffirmed it with Solomon. And the idea that he said this, he said, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. And so, God has made this covenant with David that says this idea that, that there, there's going to be a king who is going to sit on the throne, is going to reign forever, as long as, and that line will be sustained as long as you obey and follow. And so as we read through Chronicles, there's this, this plaguing question as we come to each king and we see the ups and downs of the nation. Is this king going to be the one who reigns and brings. Uh, Israel back to its its prominence and God's blessing on it. And so with King Asa, this is kind of the first time as we'll see that we get a little bit of hope. Maybe this is the offspring that will restore it and that will, a king will be on the throne after the heart of David. And so we watch the life of each king as if they might be the offspring who, who's to do this. So as we look at this... Um, the sermon's gonna be in two parts. So we're gonna look at, kind of walk through the text and look at the history of the events and what's going on here with a few comments. And then the second part, we're gonna look at some lessons and applications uh, from the life of King Asa. So as we look through the history, we're gonna look at an overview of Asa's reign, victory and reform, and then victory and decline. So those are kind of be the three sections of the historical part of this. An overview of his reign, victory in reform, and then victory in decline. So kind of an overview of his reign that we see in the first verses of chapter 14. He says this, Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land had rest for 10 years. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. So this is a common Uh, kind of description that's put on kings. They did good and right in the eyes of the Lord or they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so right up front, the, the author of Chronicles tells us that he did, he was good and right in the eyes of the Lord as God. So after he says this, he goes on to talk about and kind of define how was he good and right? Well, we see that King Asa, he took away foreign altars. He broke down pillars. He cut down ashram. He confronted idolatry in the land and got rid of it. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord and to keep the law and the commandment. And he went throughout all the cities of Judah and removed the high places and incense altars. He goes on to build fortified cities and he surrounds them with walls and towers and gates. And so from the get go, he is about the right worship of God and the removal of anything that would compete with that God. And, and an interesting point here, that often in the Chronicles you'll see, uh, as someone builds fortified cities and builds up the infrastructure, it can be done in two different ways. They can build up the infrastructure and in a lack of faith because there's an oncoming threat and that they do that to seek uh, use their own ingenuity, their own skills to fight off the enemy rather than God. But here, Asa does that actually in a time of peace. There's not an enemy right around the corner, and he's actually commended for building this up. And so we see something about the motivation of him that seems pure and blameless, and this is seen as as a good thing as he is building up the infrastructure just of the nation But as you look through these first several verses, there's a repetitive description of the kingdom under him. And especially during his first 10 years and and then going on from there, it says phrases like this, and the kingdom had rest under him. For the land had rest. He had no war in those years. He has given us peace on every side. So they built and prospered. So we see the kingdom has much peace and security and rest. And it's, it's a beautiful thing for the generations before when there was war and division. It seems that there's, 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 there's peace and rest and moving and build, building towards something here. But the question here is why? Why was there rest? Why was there peace? And in verse 7 in chapter 14, it says this it says, the land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us peace on every side. So as the, the author here summarizes and just gives an overview of the life of Asa, we see that he has peace, not because he's just a great king and ruler, but because he sought God. And God is the one who gave rest and peace. And so the end summary of Asa, and we'll hold on to this as we come back later, the end summary of him, he's he's a good king, and he did right in the eyes of the Lord. So that's that's kind of the big picture of his reign. But now we're gonna look into, set this up and looking at at two different challenges that he faced. So the first challenge uh, is gonna, well, both of these challenges are gonna come in the form of a battle, And then, in response to the battle, we're going to see a prophet that comes and and interacts with the king based on what happens in that battle. And then from there, we're going to see a response from the king. So we're going to see this pattern by looking at two different battles, one early on in his life, and then one much later in his life. So for the events in this first battle, um, we we see this in uh, verse 8. It tells us that Zerah the Ethiopian initiates a battle. So they have peace, they're building up the land, and then here, here comes a threat, here comes an enemy. So Zerah the Ethiopian is likely, has some connection to Egypt, and he comes and attacks um, in the valley, a valley near Mereshaw, which is just southwest of Jerusalem, and be a natural path that Egypt or any group from Africa would come as they approach, approach Judah. Azera, this king comes with one million men and three hundred chariots. And if you notice in there, right in verse six, uh, sorry, verse eight, it shows that Judah's army at this time is three, uh, basically fifty-eight hundred or fifty-eight thousand. No, five hundred eighty thousand. That's it. (laughs) Math is not my quick suit. Strong suit here. So. but the main idea is that basically this army is doubling the size of the army of, of Judah. And the odds are stacked against the king. Not much additional information is provided. And so it's, in one sense, as you read through the Old Testament, it's just another routine battle in the Bible. And... and I think for us in uh, modern American Western world, the idea of war and battle is not a common thing that we are familiar with, right? But we see over and over again in different regions of the world, especially for the history of Israel, wars and battles and threats and, and political realities around them are a constant pressure point on the nation. So as Asa meets Zerah, of Ethiopian he meets him they draw the battle line and in verse 11 it says this and Asa cried to the Lord his God O Lord there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak help us O Lord our God for we rely on you and in your name we have come against this multitude O Lord you are our God let not man prevail against you So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah and the Ethiopians fled. So in this we see the the threat shows up on the doorstep. and Without much thought, Asa recognizes that and he cries out to God. He says that they rely on God and they see him as their, their only hope. And as they rely, we see that Essentially, the battle takes place and God is attributed to as defeating Zerah. And the Ethiopians fell. No one remained alive. It says that they were broken before the Lord and his army and the fear of God was upon them. So in this, again, an enemy comes knocking on the door seeking to do harm to Judah. God hears Asa's cry and responds and delivers. And not only does he deliver, but they end up uh, they end up plundering the land and all the cities inhabited by these people, and come back with loads of livestock, sheep, camels. So where Israel or where Judah was not looking for trouble, they overcome their enemy, and then they have a net gain in the end that God provides bountifully for them. God reverses their fortunes from the potential destruction to the reality of victory and material gain. So that's, that's the battle that, that takes place. And here, Asa's faith is commended. His crying out to God is commended. And then we move to the prophetic announcement here. So the events of battle, then we move to the prophetic announcement, 15 verse 1 says, the spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, hear me Asa and all of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. So the prophet goes and, and just tells him beautiful words that God is with you if you were with him. If you seek him, he will be found. And that's, that's exactly what happens. Asa sought him and he was found. And then the prophet goes on and he, he calls Asa's memory to look back, um, likely to the era of, of, of the judges when they were without a teaching priest and without a law. And he says, remember when there were, there were times when there was no peace and there was affliction through the land. Remember when nation was against nation and city against city. And God troubled his people with every sort of distress. He says, Asa, look back and remember. But what do I want you to remember? Remember this, but in their distress, verse four, in their distress, they turned to God, the God of Israel, and sought him, and he was found. So there's something beautiful and wonderful here that this prophet to Asa is trying to remind him of to look back into history and to say, Remember, whenever God's people have called out to God, he hears them and responds. And then in light of this battle, you just cried out to God. God heard it and responded. There's something about the heart of God that is responsive responsive to the cry of his people. And that's what the prophet is trying to encourage Asa in. And so then in the last part, he exhorts him in verse seven, he says, but you take courage, do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. So Asa has faith in the sovereign, steadfast love of God. It's true, he trusts, but what does the prophet call him to do, to just sit on his hands and trust? No, he calls him to live confidently, with a strength that is committed to the work of obedience. He tells Asa to get to work and to work in that strength and the confidence that God is behind him. And then in that, he points to a reward, for your work shall be rewarded. So there's a promise there. So the prophet kind of lays out this vision and puts a call to Asa in his life and here's Asa's response. He responds, and, and it leads to reform. And so Asa takes this courage and, and puts it to action that God is behind him and with him, and when he seeks God, God will be found. So he responds, and immediately he gets to work. I think it says Asa t- took courage, and he put away the idols, right? So he continues in that work to put away idols. And, and, and the idea that this is just chronic, that you see this multiple times with kings, especially in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. There's a continual battle to put away the idols. And there's a repeated command for them to keep doing that throughout their lifetime. Why? Because idols keep popping up all the time everywhere. And so we see that he puts away the idols. There's, and there's a renewed effort, not just in Judah, but also in the surrounding land of Benjamin and from those of the hill country of Ephraim. And so he goes forth to, put, to push kind of the expanse out beyond Jerusalem, beyond the land of Judah from there. How else does he get to work? He repairs the altar of the Lord. And the altar is likely in disrepair due to the neglect of his father and grandfather. And repair the altar is one thing. I mean, we, many of us have... Homes and things that we need to maintain and keep up and repair, that's normal. But this is significant in the sense that the repairing of the altar, this is central to worship and life of the people. And so by repairing the altar, there's a commitment to say, we want to worship God as he is commanded for us to worship. So there's a return to rightful and honoring worship of God in the temple, in the house. And then from there, we see part of this reform is there's movement towards a unified nation. And it says, for great numbers had come to Judah from Israel because the Lord was with Asa. And this is fascinating. Because because Israel is in, in a state of disruption and distress themselves, the king in Judah who God is with, people in the region, people that have divided off from Judah are attracted to that. They see that God is with them, so they begin to come to Jerusalem, to Judah, to worship, to be under God. And so there's this movement that we see kind of later with some of the other kings as well, but there's this movement, what feels like, towards a a, a unified Israel again, a non-divided one. So reform continues to go there. And then they have a big gathering with a number of sacrifices, and the number of sacrifices is likened to the numbers associated with Solomon and Hezekiah. So we see that there's something about the, the, the bountiful sacrifice that is they come and lay things on the, on, on the altar before God in, in, in grand numbers. So we see all aspects of this, of this reform. And these are the actions that take place. But I think even more significant, we find in verses 12 through 15, there's a covenant renewal. And it says this in verse 12. Chapter 15, and they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul, but that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with the trumpets and with horns, and all Judah rejoiced over the oath. For they had sworn with all their heart and had sought them with their whole desire and he was found by them and the Lord gave them rest all around. So here they renew a covenant and a covenant in the sense that maybe for some of us today this is kind of shocking. They'd put to death those that are gonna, not gonna follow God and submit to God. But this, this falls in line with what is previously stated in the Old Testament. We see in Deuteronomy, we see in Exodus that there's this command to purity purity in relationship to God. That if one goes to worship idols, to worship one that is not God, or is found guilty of that, there was a commandment for the death penalty. And this this is a serious thing, especially for our modern minds, that's fairness and equity and rightness to all. But we need to move back a couple steps here. Like, God is for people's good, for their flourishing. But we need to also understand the bigger reality, that God is just, God is holy, and that all people born into this world stand condemned and under his wrath the moment they are born. So the death penalty is a recognition that as sin spreads, that's contagious. And we see that that's the chronic falling of Judah and Israel over and over again. Idolatry and sin is contagious. Where it's allowed, it spreads. And such a serious thing, the death penalty is commanded there. But the death penalty represents that there's a greater reality that apart from God, if we are not in right relationship with him we stand dead already and so in this covenant renewal they are taking seriously the right worship of knowing God and walking with him and they the nation agrees is <laughs> all shouting with one vow with one voice with one heart they're seeking after him with their whole desire and as they do that, I love it, he was found by them and he gave them rest. So we see that the, the full swing of this reform that takes place, Asa is seeking God. And it's worth noting just two other smaller things. He actually removes his grandmother, Makah, from, from her position. So his, his grandmother um, would be... Uh, she is the wife to Rehoboam, daughter of Absalom, who is David's son who tried to abdicate, or tried to take over the throne. But she's found in idol worship. It was engaged in that, and so he, he removes her from that. And then secondly, we see that he fills the temple with gifts, so he takes out of his own wealth and resources, and his, his parents, his dad, and grandfather's own wealth and resources and gives it to the temple, comes and gives it to God, which is an interesting detail that we'll, we'll come back to later. So this reform takes place, and the only negative comment here in this section is in verse 17. He says, but the high places were not taken out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. So we see the high places were removed in specific regions, but somewhere beyond Judah, there were still left idol worship in high places. And so that, that's the only negative thing in this part that it has to say about him, but that his heart was wholly true. So in response to this first challenge, this first battle that comes at him, Asa seeks after God, and the end result is a life of peace and rest, both for him and the kingdom. So verse 19 says, and there was no more war, until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. So if you hear that, that's a lot of years of peace and rest, but if you read that, that also represents a little bit of a transition here, right? So this is where we wanna look at kind of the, the second challenge. So first we saw the first challenge, the first battle that posed, then we see victory and reform. But now the second challenge that comes along and we'll see victory and decline. So similarly, we'll look at the events in battle, what the prophet has to say, and then Asa's response to that. So this second battle uh, shows up here in, in the beginning of chapter 16. And Basha, king of Israel, so the northern tribe who's divided off from Judah years before, they, they, Israel and Judah have been in ongoing skirmishes. And the king of Bashar, the king of Israel, he comes and he makes an aggressive move against Judah. In a city roughly just five miles north of Jerusalem, he comes and begins to build up the city of Ramah. And the city is likely placed right in a strategic main path trading route. Everyone's going to come in and through there. So he makes an economic move that we're gonna plant, we're gonna build the city, we're gonna put an army right here. And, and really the, the action is aimed at the harm and destruction of Judah. And so Asa, he acts in his own ingenuity and there's a series of events that goes from there. So we see the threat comes, more or less there's a battle line being drawn as, as the city is being built up close by. So Asa, he takes the treasures out of of the temple, he takes the treasures out of his own house, and he sends them to the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, requesting that this king of Syria break his covenant treaty with Israel. So Syria would have been a northern neighbor to Israel. And here Asa is a smart, smart political dude, good ruler of his kingdom, says, hey, if I can get them to flip If I can get Syria to flip, Israel's going to have real trouble. So he takes all the money out of the temple, right? Hold on to that fact. (laughs) Out of his own home, and 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 he gives it to the king of Syria. And the king of Syria listens to Asa and goes on to set his armies against the Israel cities. And then as that happens, Basha, king of Israel, he heard of this, and then he stopped building Rama and his wor- his work ceased. So in that, the threat is removed. And here, kinda similarly to the other one, they're building a city. Because of the war front, they have to quickly leave. And so then what does Asa and his people do? Well they go and plunder the city. They go take the stone and wood and the things that are left there and it becomes another economic gain for Judah. They carry it away and they build up their own cities. They build up their own infrastructure. And so, all of this goes perfectly according to the plans of Asa. And as if he couldn't have planned and executed it any better. He's confronted with a challenge. He addresses the challenge. He leverages his own resources to mitigate the threat. He makes a new regional ally He then uses the plunder to build up his own kingdom. And as you look at this, Asa appears to be an incredible leader that seemingly has God on his side in such a way that probably the people are saying, long live King Asa. Long live God's kingdom in Judah. And that sits there until we have another prophet show up. So chapter 16, verse seven. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro from out the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. So what does the prophet come and say? He says, he calls him out and he says, you relied on the king of Syria. You did not seek God and rely on him and then he, he reminds him, similar order. He reminds him of past history. He says, do you remember when Ethiopia came, to come, came and attacked you and they far outnumbered you and you cried out to God and you saw him and he delivered you? Do you remember that? But he says, because, you know, it, it, and at that time, because they relied on the Lord, he gave them into their hand. But then he, he goes on and, and and shows him that he didn't rely on God, and uh, and in that, because he didn't have God behind him, he didn't have strong, uh, strong support. Asa's heart was not blameless toward him. What he did was foolish, and then the consequence is that he will have wars. So the idea underneath all this is that God supports those who have a blameless heart. And when we don't have a blameless heart, when there's pride or reliance on self or reliance on something that is not God, the consequence is decline, the consequence is destruction. And so then this moves us here to Asa's response. So the prophet calls, tells him what's wrong. Verse 10, chapter 16 says, Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. So here in Asa's response, it leads to judgment. So Asa's self-reliance and reliance on someone other than God ultimately results in the judgment that will be, there will be war continually, not rest and peace. But then as you go down, we see that there's an extension of this judgment and that Asa later becomes diseased in his feet so, so severely that it'll lead to his death. And then the author here says, Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. So as we look at this, disease and sickness is not a judgment in every instance in life. That's most predominantly, that's, that's a consequence of the fall. But here, the, Chronicle, the, the author of Chronicles includes this because it is a judgment on Asa and him turning away from the Lord and not relying on him. And so with that, the end of Asa's life comes this way, verse 13. And Asa slept with his fathers, dying in the 41st year of his reign. They buried him in the tomb that he had cut for himself in the city of David. They laid him in a, in a bier that had been filled with various kinds of spices prepared by the perfumer's art. And they made a very great fire in his honor. So Asa dies. They honor him. Much of his life was good. He did great to Israel. But in this, we see that his life is defined by a tale of two battles, two challenges. And in the second one, he failed to seek and rely on God which results in him dying hardened in pride, not resting in the, in the Lord, and no rest for the land. So that's, that's the story here. Now we want to turn our attention to a, a couple lessons and applications here for his life. So the first lesson is this. Blessing is found by those who seek God through the work of obedience. Blessing is found by those who seek God through the work of obedience. So this this points us to what we are to be, how we are to orient ourselves towards God. And again, we hear the blessings that the Lord is with those who are with him. The Lord will be found by those who seek him. But we also see a warning that the Lord will forsake those who forsake him. So Asa sought after God throughout the majority of his life and he was best, blessed. God fought his battles. God established rest and peace. As long as Asa was faithful to seek after God. And for most of his life, he was faithful. But so this, this here stands as an example for us of what I mentioned earlier. We see that the heart of God is for anybody who will come to him and rest, seek him, that wants to be with God. And we see the blessing that follows in one's life with that. And so the question, I think, for each of us to look and think about in our own lives is, do you truly seek God with the circumstances of your life? What if you find God, but... Don't actually like what he's leading you to do. Right? This might be a circumstance that a of us, we seek God and then he says, you know, maybe like to the rich young ruler, I want you to sell all and follow me. And we're like, ah, nope. Not doing that. But are you seeking God in a way that is willing to do whatever he leads you to do? Are you truly ready to surrender to God's direction if it runs contrary to your own plans? And as we answer yes to this question, just like Asa, there's work to be done. When I say work, work not in the sense that we're gonna earn God's blessing by what we do, but rather work in the sense that as we work or as we work to obey, we see that God actually does the real work in and through and around us as we trust Him. Asa's work to obey the law. His His work to obey the law puts him in the path of God's blessing. And God is the one that blesses and does the work. God is the one that fights the battles. God is the one that protects. As we learned about last week, God is the one who builds his house. We don't do anything for God. But what God, but what God requires is that we submit ourselves to him, that we obey, we follow, we, we surrender. And that's gonna take some work. It's gonna take obedience. So we see this command to Asa, don't let your hands be weak. Reward is coming. We need to be encouraged by that same reality as well. And remember that we are also easily prone to weakness. Weakness in the form of discouragement or impatience or the pride of thinking we know exactly what to do. Without even a pause or second thought that we need to seek after God. So the question for each of us then is where are you weak and in need of strengthening? Where are you in need of strengthening of your faith? Do you have eyes that are set on the reward that comes in the blessing of a personal relationship with God? Do you have a strength that comes in believing that God will hear our cries and he will reward obedience? And what do I mean by that? There's a kind of thought process that can be in and around Christian circles and churches today that if we obey, then God blesses in this, this, and this way, right? And there, there's some general, general truth that is, is, we're around in God's law that there's some blessing in this life. But what, what we need to see that, especially for us today in this age, is that in this earth, world and earth as we know it right now, there's not going to be an earthly kingdom established in the way that God talked about here. That's coming in the future. And so part of our, our trusting in him, part of our obedience and, and waiting in him, part of the blessing is that God enters into our hearts, enters into our lives and transforms us amidst the circumstances and challenges that are going on. And that stuff might be flying left and right, but God does something in his blessing through his spirit to change us and then to give us eyes to see and pray and see God work through the everyday, ordinary circumstances to bring about his will. And as we pray that God actually is pleased to answer our prayers where where we labor in that. And so as Asa took courage, we're to take the same courage We're to look at reform and revival of our own lives in this way. So as he took courage and put away, also we should take courage and put away and ask the question, is there idolatry or sin or things in our life that are competing with God? And as we confront sin and confront disobedience, and tear idols down this is where god is at work <laughs> as god is restoring the land of judah and israel from a distance is looking off and people are going towards that is that any different with our lives as we fight sin and god overcomes and tears down the idols and structures of our lives such that we don't need them anymore we find joy in god and when someone sees that in your life they come in and around are like what is going on here the revival that goes on beyond and reform that goes out beyond ourselves always starts right here and so that's that's the blessing i think in this life that we want to aspire for that we want to look for is that we have right and blameless relationship with god and so where god is at work others will be drawn and desire to join in so let's let's pray for that in our hearts and lives first See that blessing is found by those who seek God. So that moves us to the second application here. All lives are accountable to God and will be judged. All lives are accountable to God and will be judged. So in the life of Asa we say that, that the Lord may allow temporary victory though the end result is ultimate defeat. So, as Asa trusted in his own resources and wealth and political ingenuity, it worked, initially at least, right? And in some cases, where there's sin and deviation from God, God shuts the door and doesn't let those things happen, and our plans are thwarted. But I think what's more true to life and my experience is that often the, the, rec- the, the, the judgment, the calling out of sin is not immediate in the sense that there is a lot of short term gain in the moment by people that are relying on things that are not God. And this is the challenging thing as we look all around us and see this person's doing that and this person's thriving over here and look what they did. And it feels like we're getting left behind. It's like, man, they're just taking matters in their own hands. Look at the blessing that comes with that. And so here we see in in the life of Asa that there is a temporary victory. Everything goes well. But then God brings a prophet to correct that, to address it. So this, this is true for many of us that we trust in our own resources or wealth or intelligence and things might work for a little while, but we need to remember in the end, God has the last word. So kind of coming back to where I started, think about this, the, the temptation is I, is I wrestle with the hopes and fears of, of raising my own kids the temptation here is that I'm, I'm moved out of fear. I'm moved out of a desire to control. I might be moved out of despair. I might be moved out of pride to think that I, I can do something on behalf of my kid. And I trust in my own wealth, influence, abilities, calling, rather than seek the Lord. And we do this with everything. Think about our careers. Do you seek God genuinely with your career? As an opportunity to glorify him? Or is it used as something for our own working? We don't seek him. We just we just do what comes natural. And so far it's worked pretty good, right? And we and we keep moving on in that. We think Uh, This could be true in other areas of our our marriages, of our recreation and leisure, of our retirement. We think about these different things that we want to control and there's different fears that guide us, that motivate us. But the question is, in those things, are we seeking God at the core? Is it his blessing and his favor and him being with us that is most important? So with Asa, he trusts in his own wealth and affluence and comfort. And then when he's confronted, he gets angry. What did Hanani, this prophet, say that got under his skin? You can look at the big story and say, Asa, seemingly, he desired peace and autonomy, right? He had some comfort. Things were going well. But in the end, he didn't like being questioned. And out of him, it's possible this heart attitude came that says, I just achieved an incredible and decisive victory for Judah. Clearly, God is with me. What do you mean I didn't rely on the Lord? Look at the fruit, look at the outcome. I'm a blessed king with a blessed nation. This kind of heart attitude is lacking a blameless heart. And it begins to take blessing or success for granted as an outcome, as if it's dependent on the king himself rather than God's presence with the king. And Ace's anger is such a human response as it often comes out when one feels that there's an injustice or that something has gone wrong contrary to our plan. So we see this anger, and anger in and of itself can be a a healthy emotion, so long as it points to a a genuine injustice. God, who is perfect and holy and loving and good, can be angry. So we can't just throw out anger right away, but anger becomes an issue when it leads one to sin, or or it comes as a result of sin. The Bible permits anger when it says, be angry and do not sin, but it draws a line where anger becomes a problem. So the question, why is Asa angry? He's angry because he thinks he's in the right. He doesn't think he's done anything wrong here. His anger leads him to sin, that he then imprisons the prophet and begins this, this chain of history of prophets trying to call to repentance and they're done away with, they're put to death, they're, they're, they're thrown out, rejected. And as he rejects the prophet, he rejects God himself. And not only does he just take it out on the prophets, prophet, he takes it out on the people who are likely t- taking the side of the prophet. So, What's the point, why am I talking about anger? Anger is an important emotion for us to become aware of. And so the question for each of us here is, where are you prone to anger? What is it that makes you angry? Why does that make you angry? Where there is anger, there is often self-righteousness. And where there is self-righteousness, there's often a blindness to sin. And with a blindness to sin, there's a desire to control an outcome and to make things right ourselves. And our, and our hopes and fears, they lead us to solutions that are often devoid of God. Like Asa, especially those of us who are Christians, our lives are complicated. We have faith in God. We've cried out to him in the past. We've seen him work in our lives. Yet the idol of comfort and affluence and worldly success It might be growing like a weed in our hearts. And as it grows as a weed, it might be choking us out from actually bearing fruit. But even worse, it could be threatening our destruction to our own soul. So take a second. Ask the question, where where does anger show up in your life? Frustration. And, And... trace that back. And maybe wherever that is, that's a place that you need to invite God and seek him and ask him to see what's going on there. The thing about weeds is they start small and they appear non-threatening. And somewhere along the way, Asa didn't think it necessary to seek God. Instead, he just started acting in a manner as he saw fit. So let's check our hearts for that self-righteous pride because it might be in seed form or for some of us it might be choking out our life right now. Either way the weed has to be dealt with. So how, how does one deal with pride and sin? How does one become blameless before God? The only way to become blameless is through repentance and faith in Jesus. He died the death in our place that we could be freed from sin and God's wrath and guilt, given a new heart, a new life to walk with him. There's nothing we can do to become blameless and that's why as we seek God, it's the most humble posture we can come as we come with an open heart and an open life, say, Lord, your will, not mine. And in the end, the Lord gives victory to the blameless, those who rely wholly on God. So we're to seek and trust God alone and remember that all lives are accountable to God and will be judged. Now, the last, the last thought, I started with something parenting, and I want to share kind of another story of parenting on, on a different end. For a number of us here, we, we find ourselves in long drawn out chronic challenges, especially when it comes to parenting so I started you know looking, looking at parenting from the young age With there's more hopes and dreams and ideals some of us are on the other end of that and there's not much hope and dreams and ideals there left there's a lot of pessimism and fear and despair but this truth of seeking God still applies there And I want to share this quick story. Some some friends of ours um, from the past have an adult child who seemingly walked away from the Lord, explicitly embracing a lifestyle of homosexuality. While the parents, heartbroken and grieved, they continued to faithfully pray and pursue their child day after day, year after year. Recently, they were overjoyed as their child repented, sought after God, found him and has trusted in him. Their child is now married to a Christian spouse. So what I want to encourage us is that the story is not yet complete. But what's required of us right now is that we seek God and especially when it comes to our kids and to some of these threats and challenges, we're gonna feel that weight. We're gonna feel that challenge. But let that all the more move us towards God to seek him and to see that he is pleased to answer. Relying on God leads to rest. Relying on self leads to defeat and destruction. Let's pray. Father, Father, We thank you this morning for the life of King Asa. Lord, we thank you for the example that his life sets that, Lord, you bless those who seek you. But Lord, we also thank you for the warning that, Lord, to reject you, to forget you does not lead to a life of blessing and rest, Lord. It leads to our end, our destruction. So, Lord, we recognize that we are all sinners we are poor and needy, we are weak and win- wounded, we are sick and sore. But Lord, that you receive all who come to you. So Lord, help us to seek you knowing that you will be found. Lord, help us to know that as we are with you, you are with us. And Lord, that is the greatest reality for this life and the life to come. So Lord, place that burden in our hearts. Lord, help us to Go to Jesus and to seek Him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org